Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello from the children of planet Earth. I got it! I got it! I got it! I'm patched in! All right, let me hear it. Me a liar fish. It uh, could be AWACS out of Kirtland jamming us, but I'm doubting it. All right, let's see if Fudd's reading it too. Willie, patch it back and give me the off axis. Are we recording? Never stopped. Thank you, Elmer. AWACS status is negative. Now, what about White Sands? On this frequency? No. I'm gonna punch up the darks. How's this playing tonight, guys? Come on. All right. Norad's not tracking any snoops in this vector. Shuttle Endeavor's in sleep mode. Okay, point source confirmed. Whatever it is, it ain't local. Position? I checked interferometry somewhere in Lyra, I think. Uh, Vega? Can't be. It's only 26 light years away. Hey, what's the peak intensity? Coming up. Vega. A bunch of times at Arecibo. It was negative results, always. Got it. Reading over 100 jet skis. Jesus. Pick it up on my... No. You're listening to Interstellar Message, the universe-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. And today, we're not alone. For this special science, astronomy, and sci-fi-themed episode of Text Message, we're incredibly excited to be joined by three very knowledgeable guests to discuss the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, interplanetary travel, the science behind science fiction, and more. First, Pamela Gay, Director of Technology and Citizen Science at the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, Director of CosmoQuest, and co-host of the wonderful science podcast Astronomy Cast. Hey, Pamela. Hello, Nate. How are you doing? I am doing great. It's my birthday and I would be doing nothing better than doing a science podcast. Uh, also joining us is Veronica Belmont, product manager at Growbot.io, host of Mozilla's IRL podcast and science fiction and fantasy themed book club Sword and Laser. Hey, Veronica. Hello. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you very much. Well, also here is uh, the co-host with Veronica of Sword and Laser, as well as the host of Daily Tech News show, Mr. Tom Merritt. Hello, Nate, and happy birth year. Thank you very much. I'm doing my best to stretch it out as long as possible. Yeah, why not? For our regular listeners, this is a step outside of our usual comfort zone today. It's a topic Ian and I are very passionate about. And for those of you listening to us for the first time, we hope you enjoy our journey around the universe and maybe consider subscribing to our show at techpodcast.uk for a different kind of take on each week's technology news. Now, we are gathered here today, ladies and gentlemen, to talk about astronomy and interstellar travel and the search for extraterrestrial life, and it's going to be a very, very fun 45 minutes. But you may be asking yourself why this is normally a tech show. I'll try my best to explain. 
astronomy and cosmology has been a fascination of mine since I was a kid. And it's only actually because I got a break to move to London to become a tech journalist that I didn't uh, give up the writing dream and actually go and study uh, astrophysics and become a researcher. So for this special episode, we're going to spend some time talking about some of the themes raised in Carl Sagan's book Contact and the subsequent film starring Jodie Foster. Um, so, but, so first, a bit of a recap, I think, on the story. In a nutshell, in one paragraph, a scientist named Dr. Ellie Arroway, working within the SETI facility at the Arecibo Observatory, discovers a mysterious signal, apparently coming from the star system Vega. Turns out the signal is being received as a repeating set of pulses that follows an ascending pattern of prime numbers. Within the signal was an encoded message which ultimately translated into being schematics for an interstellar transport vessel and i won't give any more spoilers but i'm hoping that everyone listening has seen or read uh, the story now the film and book does differ uh, they do differ on a few points but huge parts of both book and film detail the political religious financial personal and existential issues surrounding first contact and we're going to spend some time over the next half hour discussing some of those themes so First, Pamela, let's take a step back and talk about the nature of first contact. Is there any consensus in the scientific community about what form any first contact might take? And is Sagan's idea of a, of a prime number sequence containing encoded schematics a reasonable theory? It, it's completely reasonable. And I think that any one consensus, I can't say there is because we're looking in multiple ways, but there's probably three big ways that we're looking. The first is the familiar to everyone listening to stars, listening for those radio signals. This is one of the prime things that the SETI Institute is doing out in Mountain View, California. They have their Allen telescope array, but we're also looking at atmospheres and it's entirely entirely possible with the technology we have today, we might start being able to detect highly polluted worlds orbiting other stars and, well, see an industrial revolution indicating intelligence elsewhere in our galaxy. And then, of course, there's always that hope that, hey, maybe one of these rogue objects flying through our solar system is going to be an alien spacecraft. But uh, so far, none of those things have happened. Um, so what, one of the issues that Sagan's story deals with is the is the political question of, of who should be the first to meet an extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, and it, it's, it's something that actually I think was debated a bit more in, in the book where there were five travelers in the in the uh, in the ship, whereas in the film there was there was just one. And so I think it is fair to assume that if you were if you were Chinese, you'd probably like a Chinese person to be the first to travel. If you're in the US, you'd want an American. Uh, I certainly would like the idea of someone like Tim Peake, uh, the British astronaut being the first to go so tom veronica aside from nationality what do you think would make a good candidate for being the first to speak to extraterrestrial life well i think it, it has to be somebody who most people put their trust in and is good at communication mm-hmm. so it, it would have to be somebody who is either a moderator you know like a kofi annan uh kind of person uh or or a nelson mandela uh, kind of person, maybe it could even be a, a very intelligent talk show host because you you need that kind of skill to be able to. <laughs> so Oprah, what you're saying is Oprah. Yeah, maybe Oprah, right? It's not a bad choice. <laughs> yeah, I like I like that idea as well too. I think it, it has to be someone with no specific political agenda. I would say, uh, and that's really hard to find uh, in, in this day and age. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure which country or which you know 
area this person would come from, but someone who, like Tom said, has excellent communication skills and is able to kind of keep politics out of it, maybe consider the the best interests of the human race. I think that would be good also um, to keep that in mind in, in the back of their mind as they're communicating for the first time. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really tough to know what set of skills in that situation would be most important. What sort of skills should somebody have in, in that sort of situation? And did, did contact handle it correctly, do you think? I, I appreciate the way they handled it with this idea of diversity of cultures, diversity of thought. Uh, one of the things that kind of bothered me in the book was they initially set aside the, the Jodie Foster-like character, Ellie, because she was an atheist. And they said that that wasn't representative of mankind. And I really think that whomever we send, they need to be able to have that deep philosophical ability to communicate, but it doesn't matter as long as they can communicate what their personal belief system is. We do need to send the philosophers, the artists, the poets with their ability to see things in a different way than the scientists, but we also need the scientists. It's only together that we can fully represent society and you truly can't advance science without also advancing society. So if um if if you guys were all offered the opportunity to go, would would you take it? Nope. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But I'm not going to Mars. I want to go visit the aliens, but please yeah. don't put me on a death rocket to Mars. <laughs> I'd mess it up. I, just I was about I... to go there too, Veronica. I was like, I'm not sure I'm the right choice, but if you told me like you get to go, I'd I'd probably take it. It's an interesting one because that is one of the things in the the film is that there's that the guy who uh, who pulls out because of his kids and I, I mean you know I've got kids so that would probably be a factor for me but I guess you'd have to be kind of brave to sort of take it on faith that you're going to come back at all. I would assume I wouldn't come back. I think yeah. that would yeah. be. Yeah. I would I would go into it expecting that and and that's not really an issue. I think more for me I would I don't want the the burden of of potentially destroying human race <laughs> <laughs> by saying the wrong thing, which you know, I got a got a bit of a temper. It might happen. <laughs> You know, we might be able to at least travel to the moon. I mean, I don't know about Mars, Pamela. You will probably be able to comment much better on that than I will. Um, but getting to Vega, pretty tough without wormholes, I'm guessing. And wormholes have a tendency to collapse if you put matter into them, which is a bit problematic and troubling. Mm. But they did not know they were going to fall into a wormhole when they turned on this device. So that was not a concern they could have. Veronica, you've uh, obviously got a very wide knowledge of, uh, of sci-fi and, and TV shows and books and things. Are there any other great examples that you have uh, of dealing with the topic of, of humans meeting extraterrestrials? Well, I actually really think that Arrival handled it extremely well. Um, I think when you when you ask the question of who would be best suited to to communicate, I think somebody who has an expertise in that area and being able to to translate the the communication between the two races would be incredibly important. Um, so yeah, I think I think the the film Arrival and the story uh, story of your life and others. Um, I think worked for me and, and felt very real and felt very true to how I would see our current society handling the situation or not handling the situation very well. I, I would add too that uh, the, not only is Arrival a great representation, but the story of your life by Ted Sheng that it's based on is even better. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're, they're both amazing. And I would add Dawn by Octavia Butler as another good first contact story. It's the first in the Lilith Brood. In fact, the entire Lilith Brood 
uh, trilogy. Is that just because you want hot alien sex, Tom? (laughs) (laughs) No, not just. I think it. Not just. Yeah, you could remove that and it would still stand on its own. Uh, But it, but it's it's a great exploration of cultural difference that that might happen. One one that you left out was uh, the Sparrow by Mary Norris Russell. Oh, I was going to say the Sparrow. I was going to say that was actually going to be my next suggestion. So excellent. I was going to say the Sparrow as well as my Mm -hmm. choice because that is. fantastic absolutely fantastic and also sort of deals with the religious side of it um, as well quite well it's a book that caused me to openly weep on the london underground which probably disturbed everyone around me but i was jet lagged and the book is that good and it deals with all the things that can go so terribly wrong when cultures that truly don't understand one another try to help one another with the best of intentions and it goes into the language struggle. It goes into the cultural struggle and just the the human struggle of being so separated from everything that you've ever known. And and read it, but maybe not while jet lagged on the London Underground. <laughs> We've not had any proof yet that we're anything other than alone in this universe of ours, Pamela. But there have been some exciting possibilities uh, or, or signals or, or otherwise in history. And I wonder if you could give us a, an example of, of a good one or a, or a personal favorite of yours. Well, the one that I'm currently enjoying uh, watching it roll out is we recently had a extrasolar rock come hurtling through our solar system that has a shape like no other asteroid that we've ever seen. And people are like, it's really a spaceship. And scientists are like, probably not. And, and the SETI Institute has been directing their, their radio systems to listen to it. No one has detected any, uh, any signals. It's uh, characteristics for how it reflects light appear that it should be some regular rocky object. It's just super fast, super weird orbit, shaped like nothing we've ever known. And this desire to make first contact, people keep being like, but maybe it'll be an alien. Let's check Foo. And every time we check Foo, it's not an alien. But it's brilliant to watch this story play out. And this is how the story keeps playing out. Back in in August of 1977, uh, folks from Ohio State University's Big Ear Radio Telescope were doing as one does and scanning through the star-rich parts of our galaxy, looking for some sort of a signal. And for the briefest of moments, there was this intense blip on one of their radio receivers, but it wasn't replicated in the other horn. It was never replicated when people looked back at that part of the sky. And now for almost the entirety of my life, people have been going back and trying to figure out what this blip was. And we don't have any answers that everyone agrees on. So we keep getting these tantalizing, we can't prove it's an alien, doesn't appear to be an alien, but we want it to be an alien thing. And is it it's it's good that SETI is still a thing and still doing this kind of work because it, it has its critics. It, it has its critics, but the thing we have to remember is while they're out there listening for the kinds of signals that are specific to alien life, they're also creating vast data sets that can also be used for science in many cases, and they're doing no harm. They they have their own telescopes. They uh, pay for their time on mainstream telescopes like everybody else, which supports the infrastructure. And a null result is still an answer. Uh, 
So why should we stop them from asking the question, is there life out there leaking radio signals into the universe? And do we do it the other way around? Do we deliberately send signals into space to try and make contact? It, we do. It's it's a little bit disturbing. Um, this this is called METI, messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, just to take uh, acronyms to their silliest <laughs> possible conclusion, uh, we actually sent a radio signal to a uh, red dwarf star that's a little over twelve light years away, um, and. It's it's the kind of thing that when we do it, and we just did this last month, uh, when we do this, it really worries folks that we're now telling aliens exactly where we are and that we're technologically advanced enough to send these high power signals, but clearly not technologically advanced enough to come visit them. So mm. if they can come visit us, they can probably just take over. Um, and folks like Stephen Hawking aren't really a fan. Uh, Elon Musk has expressed a bit of concern about this habit that we have. So uh, send signals with care because you're not quite sure what sort of uh, robocall we're going to get in response. But what makes that signal more likely to ha have us discovered than, say, just our natural, you know, radiating energy, as it were? It's it's that we're sending these out uh, significantly more powerful. So any given day, we're just sort of transmitting our radio signals, our television signals. And any of you who've ever driven cross-continent know that you'll be tuned into a radio signal and happily listening to your music music and you get that one mile too far and your radio station goes away. That's what we're leaking to space. And if I can't readily tune in to a Boston television station from the moon, it's going to take a lot of care for someone 12 light years away to tune into that signal. So what what folks at METI are doing is they're taking our radio telescopes, putting them on transmit mode and beaming a signal, sort of like a laser beam, but in radio and not as well focused in the direction of a given star and saying, we're going to amp up our signal, focus our signal, direct our signal and make it as possible as we can for the aliens to hear us. It's kind of the difference between shouting at the person downstairs and just like talking across the room. <laughs> In context, obviously, one of the, the big plot points is, is Earth's response to the fact that alien life has been discovered. There's a message. There is a, a schematic. Um, and, and one of the most dramatic responses, I think, to, um, to the discovery was uh, essentially a terrorist uh, blowing up the machine that had been built to transport somebody to vega so i'm curious um and, and tom and veronica maybe you could uh, take the first stab at this how do you think it would play out in in our current climate uh when we first get a signal from an alien intelligence i think it will both have a disruptive and calming influence at the same time and i think sagan you know, does does a fair job grappling with what that would mean. Uh, there will be a lot of competition about who gets to answer. 
who gets to represent us. And there, there will be fights over that. But at the same time, nothing unifies a society like an external thing. I, I don't want to say threat because it doesn't even have to be threatening. It just has to be something that we're all like, that's not us. And uh, we've seen that play out throughout history where larger and larger societies become possible because you can unite uh, as 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 an ideal or as a, an economy that is different from the other. And when we've never united as a planet, I often think that's because there isn't anything else to unite against uh, or against. Is, again, it doesn't have to be combative. There's nothing to define us. It's like we're us. We're uh, all of us are us. If there is another Suddenly, I think we will just get a sense of unity that will push us to do some surprising things. And I really don't know how that would play out. Yeah, I, I, I echo Tom completely. I think I think uh, Sagan did an amazing job anticipating how the responses would play out from from country to country and how there would be a lot of strife, you know, religiously, uh, politically. Um, and I think I, I, that's, it feels true to me. And I think it, it would almost be nice to have something to, to unite towards or against, I guess, depending on the ultimate outcome. Um, but yeah. I think it, it felt when I was reading it, I was like, wow, this really feels like how even in today's current political climate, this would play out. And I think that it's an interesting point um, about the perceived threat, and it, because that came up in Arrival, in that they actually weren't a threatening force at all. But the response from so many people was, this is something to be feared. This is the end of the world. We must shut this down. And I mean, there's no reason really not to think that also in some ways, because if you really don't, I mean, this feels very kind of xenophobic, I guess. But if you if you don't know, if you can't communicate, if you don't understand what's happening, it's kind of our natural response to to be afraid of it and to kind of, you know, round up the the the, the buffalo the bison as it were and, and yeah and protect against it um but we have to use our our greater intelligence our our sense of of excitement or exploration to kind of break through that and 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 figure out what what's actually happening it is our evolutionary advantage to assume the worst so yeah. you know yes um, it is our belief that the message contains instructions for building something some kind of machine a machine that does what, Doctor? Well, we don't know. It might be some type of uh, uh, advanced uh, communication device, or it could be a, a teaching machine of some kind, or uh, it might turn out to be some kind of a transport. Transport? There's no proof of that. The fact is, you don't know what it does. It could be anything. It could be a Trojan horse. We build it, not pours the entire vegan army. Why bother even risking the personnel? It could be a weapon. Right, some kind of a doomsday machine. Exactly. Every time they detect a new civilization, they fax down these construction documents from outer space. We poor saps build whatever this thing is and blow ourselves to kingdom come. Uh, there's no reason to believe that their, their intentions are hostile. Why is it the default position of the egghead set that aliens would always be benign? Why is that, Doctor? We Do we think that we'd even be capable of putting together the, the project in the way they do in the in contact. And and it, would we even ever be able to decide to send somebody? Like, is it possible that we'd, we just wouldn't be able to do it at all? Oh, I think Elon Musk becomes your Haddon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that part's taken care of. I, and that really is one of the key parts in the book is there's this rich human in the background who's like and i'm going to fund my own production of this in secret in japan 
And, and I think there's always going to be that rich entity, whether it be the Catholic church from the sparrow, whether it be the rich human from contact, there's going to be that deep pocketed entity that is able to say, well, all of you are deciding what to do with the public funds. I'm just going to get this done with private funds. Yeah. And I suppose one of the things about, um, about contact is that it's it it feels very believable you know it, it feels like it's playing out in the way that it really would play out if that happened at the time it was it was written um not all films and books are that close to the accurate truth if you like um does anyone have any examples of of science that's just completely wrong in popular media <laughs> <laughs> Where would you like us to start? Yeah, <laughs> I had one. La I was rewatching Force Awakens last night in preparation to see the the new film uh, tomorrow, and I don't want to be too spoilery, but the well, I guess I kind of have to be harnessing the power of a sun. Uh, and being like within yes. proximity to that energy, like b while being on the actual weapon that's funneling the energy from a sun to shoot it at other at another system, like the radiation alone, right, would just like completely disintegrate any people in in the area, right? Like I, I was watching, that, I was like, this doesn't seem. Also, you you shouldn't be able to see it in the sky on on a, a planet that's nowhere near. Yeah, it, exactly. They call it a hyperspace weapon, which implies that the weapon is traveling through hyperspace. Which is, if it's true, you shouldn't see it in regular space. Mm -hmm. And if it's traveling in regular space, it's limited to the speed of light. And we see it blowing up multiple worlds that are presumably light minutes, hours, days, years apart. And we're seeing it from another solar system, which is presumably at least a couple of light years. Yes, the speed of light in Star Wars is broken on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. And, and also uh, parsecs, not a, not a measure of acceleration or speed. Well, so I'm willing to give that one to them because we do discuss the mass of the mass of particles according to how much energy they have. So I've always taken that one to be he was traveling so fast that he contracted the distance to that. But if he'd been traveling that fast through normal space, it would have also taken him decades in his yeah, I'm going to shut up now. I, I do, no, no, I do like the retcon that has been done on the parsecs. Like, oh, no, what, what he's saying is he created a shorter way, and that's because he was moving so fast. I do. I respect that. I'll, I'll give them that one, too. You're right. Midichlorians. Oh, I hate <laughs> midichlorians. Uh, all the Barsoom, all of the uh, the the uh, the Mars uh, stuff from the fifties. Uh, not not just uh, Barsoom, but all of them where they're walking around on Mars, breathing oxygen without assistance mm. i mean my favorite example uh is in a very early episode of the tv sitcom red dwarf where the ship manages to not only hit the speed of light but break through it and travel faster than the speed of light <laughs> which then causes things that happen in the future to play out in the present so the crew members were seeing themselves as old men uh, on the ship and uh, and they had to sort of reverse and then slow down below the light barrier in order to sort of res resume normal ship running which is kind of ridiculous but a lot of fun we could name literally any sci-fi show and it would be largely wrong but some of the things they get wrong are so petty so in, in star trek enterprise they keep dropping out of warp 50 meters off the bow of another ship <laughs> 
but they don't know how fast that other ship is going at the level of 50 meters per second. And they certainly still have a lot of momentum. And when you look at the pictures, they're definitely more than 50 meters apart. So why are they saying they dropped out of war at 50 meters off the bow? They should get that petty detail right. They're imperial meters. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite with Star Trek was always that uh, I remember reading ages ago that it was, you know, whilst it was possible perhaps to travel at warp speed, you know, in some way, the, the one thing that I absolutely couldn't do, and they, they do this all the time, is communicate with Earth. And it's so, sort of surprising in a way because you, I guess you kind of think, well, I suppose that seems reasonable in a world where you can, you know, travel around the universe. But getting a signal back to Earth would be the hardest thing. So has, um, a book I just finished uh, reading is uh, Andy Weir's new book, uh, Artemis. I'm curious, has anyone, uh, has anyone read that yet? Not yet. Not, Not yet. yet. No. Oh. Did you read The Martian? Yes. yes. His last one? Yes. yes. What, uh, how, how scientifically accurate is The Martian, Pamela? Well, you, you have to uh, sort of give him the first bit of the book where it's like, and the wind, <laughs> um, because Mars does not have that much air pressure. Uh, so the wind would not be that big a deal. Uh, but once you get past the and the wind issues, he does pretty good. Uh, it's It's unclear if... Uh, living on potatoes would would work as well as it's presumed to work in the movie. But, it works fine for me, to be honest. <laughs> well, I I guess maybe you're genetically predisposed to that. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm making stuff up, but uh, the the idea of being able to hack things together to fix things on the fly. And the way they handle trying to get off the world by stripping things down and recognizing that Mars just doesn't have that thick of an atmosphere at the end. It's its all shadows of the truth that are close enough that you're not going to scream at the screen. I think we, we talked to, to Andy Weir about this, too, at one point on Sword and Laser, and he, he's pretty upfront with the fact that he is just kind of like making it work as best he can um, and just trying to also leave some space for the storytelling to happen. Um, so he, he, he said pretty upfront, like, well, I tried to make it scientific, but, you know, I don't work for NASA, so whatever. He said something along the lines of, I, I stretched plausibility as far as it could go and in and, and, and keeping with the story and occasionally had to break it. So, Tom, uh, you write sci-fi. You've, you've published books. Um, how important is scientific accuracy to you when developing a story? Scientific accuracy is very important both to me as a writer and a reader when I'm making a scientific claim. Uh, I don't want to claim something is scientifically true in a story and then it's not. Uh, I don't have a problem with science fiction, particularly saying we're not hard sci-fi, so we're going to have warp drive. And that's just a thing. And it's, you know, it's not necessarily impossible, uh, but that's just a thing that's going to make it a space opera now instead of a hard sci-fi story. So if you're not Kim Stanley Robinson, I think it's fine to to fudge some things for the sake of the story. But if you're going to say, well, the drive that that makes this spaceship go or the process by which we travel through time is X, Y, and Z, then I think that needs to be within the realm of, of scientific accuracy. And so as a writer, I actually try to avoid it as much as possible uh, and say, look, I'm, I'm not going to make claims about how they do things if I can't justify how they do them. And so a lot of times 
what I write is and ends up being space opera because I'm like, he's going to travel through time. I'm not going to explain how he does that. We're just going to say that he, that they, there's, they figured it out and, and, and leave it at that. Pamela, if you were going to write a novel tomorrow about something rooted in science, in, in astronomy or, or cosmology or similar, um, what would you, what would you go for? What would, you, what would be your core your core topic. I don't. I didn't prep you for this ahead of time because it's just occurred to me. Um, no, I actually have an answer. Excellent. So, what one of the things that that has uh, always been in the back of my brain as oh that's a bad idea don't do that which is always something that's an excellent preface for a book is there are so many companies out there that want to go grab an asteroid and mine it and if you do that wrong you're not going to grab an asteroid and bring it back near Earth. You're going to go grab an asteroid and bring it back and destroy Earth. And I'd kind of like to do that, not Armageddon, but that book that is, we're off mining an asteroid, something went wrong, and now we need to figure out how to fix it because we're coming in a bit close and are going to do something coming bad, if not on this orbit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that coming in hot. Just a cautionary tale. I want to write my own cautionary tale about asteroid mining. Oh, that's the name of the book. Make that the name. Coming in hot. Oh, man. That sounds more like a romance in space. Comment in hot. Comet in hot. Nope, not working. No, because the tail, <laughs> the comet has a tail, so there's... Mm. No, mm. this is this is this is this is gold. <laughs> That's what they're mining on the comet. We're workshopping. Oh. <laughs> Speaking of gold, actually, this just reminded me of a conversation actually I had with a colleague of mine at, at Bloomberg, who I was talking to him about um, asteroid mining, and he said, "Well." If that becomes a real thing and we find giant reserves of mineable sort of, uh, you know, tin and all this kind of stuff out in a comet, it would it would cause the the economy on Earth to basically collapse because the value of the commodities we have on Earth would just basically disintegrate from under us because there's just such a huge plentiful supply. And I thought that's a very fascinating idea i don't know how realistic that is as a concern uh, of economists it would certainly disrupt but... the economy i don't know that it would it has to them. right yeah yeah it, it it has to and i think this has come up in various science fiction books before where they end up like being secretive about the fact that they actually have this huge reserve but where astronaut mining starts to become necessary is we're going to run out of helium every child's helium balloon is actually an irresponsible purchase because we need helium for so many scientific instruments as a cooling agent. And and so here we do need to prepare to go out and grab things from rocks in the future. You've hit my um, favorite topic there. I love I love the helium stuff. I talk about it all the time and I'm not even joking about <laughs> that. It's hilarious. It, it is brilliant because I've been into a card shop before now and they didn't have any helium and someone told me there's a helium shortage. I was like, how can they be short of helium? It's one of the most, you know, populated, populous gases in the entire universe but it's out there but but it doesn't like to stay put 
So we mine it from the planet. We don't think of mining helium, but we do. Does it float away? It, it totally floats away. And worse than that, a little helium atom minding its own business because it doesn't like to bond with anything. So it only mines its own business. It uh, When it gets hit with some sort of a molecule, the transfer of momentum will actually cause it to fly away at escape velocities. So... Every time we release helium into our atmosphere, we're actually losing it forever over a fairly short period of time. Veronica, um, as someone with a great knowledge uh, and interest in in bots and chatbots as well as sci-fi, obviously, are there any good examples that um, you have, favorites of yours, about maybe scientific stories that do a really good job of exploring our relationship with with automated systems in some way? You know, I don't really know if this if this is what you were thinking of, but I think the the best representation I've seen in a science fiction type tale, especially in film, would be her, the film her. Um, I think the the representation there of of artificial intelligence and not just how the artificial intelligence would interact with people, but also the representation of the the UI and the way that people interact with the AI uh, was really, really spot on and, and felt very, very true to the stuff that people are working on today and how in what a near future representation of that would look like. And I, I thought, you know, I, I don't know if I really believe in the whole kind of singularity aspect of it, um, but I do think that it was very close to how I envision the technology moving forward. And it's interesting to think about how AI and chatbots and machine learning and things like that could down the line if we do get to a point where we we discover uh, an extraterrestrial intelligence how that could come together to sort of form uh, kind of a at least a foundation of communication you know yeah. if if we have had great machine learning and AI and 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 bots in something like arrival you know could that have been resolved a lot faster and a lot less uh uh you know irreversibly than it was in the film. Yeah, it's interesting because we were a long, super, super long way off from the type of AI that people talk about in in science fiction. Um, But I think something interesting that did happen this past year was the the uh, the two Facebook AIs speaking to one another. And Tom and I talked a lot about this on DTNS in the past. Um, But these two bots essentially created a shorthand uh, for communicating with each other. And it got so complicated that the researchers, the people who created them, could no longer understand what the two bots were talking about. And so they shut the project down. And they weren't saying anything bad. They weren't becoming much smarter. They were just they were making their conversation easier to each other. And really, at the end of the day, that's what technology tries to do is is simplify and and, you know, prioritize the communication in a certain way. And it was just doing its job. But when people can no longer understand that, it becomes upsetting on a very weird level. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of the twin uh, twin speak, I think they call yes, it, where yeah. young, young kids, they had sort of almost formed their own little micro language. And so I definitely have some concerns about what would happen in a situation where we introduce a, a very smart system and artificial intelligence of some kind to communicate with alien intelligence, because I believe our systems would 
learn very quickly, but they might learn past the point that we can understand them and make use of the information. Uh, they would have to be able to dumb it down pretty pretty quickly for us. Um, and mm. I don't know how they would respond to an alien intelligence in terms of would they say the right thing? Would they respond with empathy? Would they understand the context of the conversation? There's so many unknowable things, especially when they start processing that quickly. Um, I'm, I'm afraid we wouldn't be able to keep up. This this uh, interstellar vehicle of a podcast is uh, is hurtling towards its conclusion. Uh, so I feel like we should conclude in in some way. Um, so Pamela, maybe you could you can help us. Where do you think the next big discovery in, in cosmology and in and in astronomy is going to come from, and what might it be to do with, or, or even just what's your most exciting uh, current research that you're that you're keeping your eye on at the moment? Well, the the thing with science is the coolest discoveries are the ones that we weren't anticipating. And I think all of us are waiting desperately for the consistently postponed launch of the James Webb Space Telescope because it's going to offer us a chance to see things we've never seen before in the first moments of the universe. And we have ideas about how and when the first stars and galaxies formed, but we'll have data and we have ideas for how solar systems form, but James Webb will actually be able to see solar systems in the process of forming. And by snapshotting a whole variety of them, we'll be able to build up a picture book of that formation, much like we've built up a picture book for how galaxies collide. And I think it's waiting for this new spacecraft where we know excitement's going to come from. But then, of course, there's the everyday uh, things. We we know that uh, Michael Brown is out there desperately searching for, well, I don't know if it's desperate, he's out there diligently searching for this extra planet we're pretty sure our solar system has that's gravitationally tugging the dwarf planets in our outer solar system. We have people out there continuing to look for extrasolar worlds. And one of these days, we're going to start finding oxygen in an atmosphere, other chemical signatures that indicate there's things that can't be explained as occurring without life. And it's it's going to be a wild ride in the next few decades. So it's a great time to uh, start studying in order to become the researcher to discover these these amazing worlds of the future, I guess. Never been a better time. Great. OK, well, this has been the most fascinating 45 minutes of podcasting I've ever done on my birthday and possibly ever. Um, it's been <laughs> tremendous, tremendous fun. Um, so let's go uh, around the table and just uh, get you to uh, tell people where they can find more of your insights and knowledge. Veronica, why don't we start, uh, start with you? Sure. Uh, yeah, you can find me podcasting for Mozilla over at IRLpodcast.org. Um, we just put out a big net neutrality episode um, in light of the recent vote. And uh, season two is going to be starting on January 11th, I think, or 8th, one of those. But you can subscribe at IRLpodcast.org. Also, Sword and Laser at swordandlaser.com. Which is where you'll also find Tom. Where, where else can people find you outside of Sword and Laser, Tom? Sure. Uh, you can also find Veronica on Daily Tech News Show with me on Mondays. <laughs> yeah. And I'm on it daily, uh, dailytechnewsshow.com. And uh, all the other things I do, books I write, other podcasts I do, are at tommerritt.com. If someone was going to read one of your, your novels, Tom, which one should they pick? 
Oh, I, I don't know. Either pick Pilot X or Pavaria because they're the last two that I put out and I feel like I, I get a little better each time. So they, they're the most readable. And Pamela, where, where should people follow you? The best place to listen is astronomycast.com where co-host Fraser Kane and I put out a weekly podcast. If you want to get involved in doing science, check out cosmoquest.org. And all of these different things are a part of the Astronomical Society of the Pacific at astrosociety.org. Amazing. I would get Ian to uh, to tell us where they can find him, but it's obvious. It's on this show every week. Um, so I'm afraid you don't get a voice this time, mate. But, but Tom, Veronica and Pamela, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. It's been fantastic fun. And uh, maybe we'll do this again in the future when that, that fateful signal finally reaches Earth. Sounds awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks to our patrons, of course, supporting us at patreon.com slash UK tech. Not that this show was charged for. This is our gift to you. Uh, we usually spend half an hour a week dissecting how the global tech industry is affecting or being affected by Britain. So it's been a lot of fun to step outside of that realm in such a large way this week. Um, if this is the first episode you're hearing of ours, do check out our regular show at techpodcast.uk or by searching in your podcast store of choice for text message, T-E-C-H apostrophe S message. And also be sure to check out, of course, our guests' great shows if this is your first time hearing them. Daily Tech News Show and Sword and Laser from Tom and Veronica and Astronomy Cast from Pamela. Until next time, I'm Nate Langson. Deposition is confirmed. We've got 4.4623 gigahertz. Confirmed. We've got 112 Jamskis. All right, do you have a source location yet? We put it right smack in the middle. Vega. so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm going to get you that budget just as soon as... Uh, Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian.